Hey everyone, just a quick note to share before we start the show. Here at SmartLogic, we are currently hiring for a mid-level Rails developer. We're looking for someone with experience equivalent to two to three years working on a large Ruby on Rails projects. If this is you or anyone you know, head on over to smartlogic.workable.com to apply. We're taking applications from anywhere in the U.S. since we're all remote at this point anyways. And you won't stay programming in Rails forever, so the chance of future Elixir work is high. Okay, now here's the show. Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by SmartLogic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. My name is Justice Epen, and I'll be your host today. I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Ostrich. And today on season four of Elixir Wizards, we are talking about system and application architecture with our special guest, Lau Tornsko. How are you doing, Lau? Pretty good. Thank you, Justice. Super glad to have you on the show. We wanted to open up with kind of a hot button issue. What are TLAs and what's your hot take on them? They can be three-letter abbreviations or two-letter abbreviations. Mm. So um, basically, it's a lot of syllables and uh, not that much information. And you have a lot of people inventing new ones kind of on the fly. And I think maybe it's a thing I moved to the U.S., a year ago, and I think, and maybe it's a thing that's more common here than certain other places. In uh, some cases, like, like the very well-knowns make sense. But if anything is like, if you spell them out, you might find some information that you don't really think about where you just use the letters. For instance, people say like ATM machine, or also another thing we're going to get into with time zones, they say like PST or PDT or something like that. And if you actually said the whole thing, you might realize, oh, this does make sense. It does make sense to ATM machine. And in general, I've been thinking about you know communication being explicit. And I think it's kind of relevant also to programming, communicating well. So we don't want to get into TMI before, <laughs> before, before we, because we're definitely talking about, thank you. We're going to be talking about time zones here shortly. This is a great thing. I, I would love to talk. We could talk about three-letter abbreviations because... We have some government clients and they love their three-letter abbreviations, their TLAs, which is hilarious. So we can get into that. But we want to also get to know you a little bit better, Lau. Can you talk a little bit about how you got started in this world of programming and computer science? What were your beginnings like? It goes back a long time. When I was a child, I started programming in basic and I've been just playing with computers, playing video games and I started doing basic. I even once rented a book from library where you could type in the code, like the basic code from the adventure game. I started doing HTML in the 90s, like just, you know, view source and figuring out, oh, we can add GIFs now. They're animated and all that stuff. Then I started doing a server-side program with PHP. And then I um, started also studying business and computer science at Copenhagen Business School. Meanwhile, also started working on, I had a classmate from high school started a e-commerce business and uh, this was done in PHP. The business grew and I made a new system then in um, a new language because at university classmate was making this new framework for Ruby and I've been looking at, oh, should I do PHP? I was kind of, there's some things I didn't like too much about it. Should I start using Python or should I start using Ruby? So this, I saw this framework that was pretty cool. So I started using that and that turned out to be, at the time it didn't 
have a name, but it turned out to be called Rails. So I thought that was great. Like Ruby was great and Rails was great. And uh, it was interesting to see how it grew from nothing to being very widely used. So I used that since Ruby since like 2003. And this was also, you know, learned things about computer science at the uh, university. But all alongside, I've been programming, running e-commerce software for various businesses. So I built a e-commerce platform in PHP and then in Ruby. And then after a while of Ruby, I was never totally happy with, you know, this, I wasn't saying, oh, this is like the perfect thing. And then I heard something about, I looked into Erlang a little bit. And then when I found out about Elixir, I thought this was great. So I've been using Elixir since 2014. I've been doing some open source with it. And um, yeah. So you were classmates with DHH? Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Do we know what PHP stands for? It's a uh, self-referential. hypertext processor or something? I don't know. Yeah. Hmm. That just occurred to me because we were talking about TLAs and yeah. PHP is a TLA. So it's DHH. <laughs> uh, personal homepage tools, apparently. Wow. Really? Huh. Or now it's PHP hypertext preprocessor. But anyways. Yeah, it's like PHP and then HP. It's kind of self-referential. Wow. Okay. Programmers are weird, man. It's like YAML. Anyway, but I'm not going to get into that. What? Yeah, it's, all, it's all about those uh, recursive TLAs. <laughs> yep. <laughs> all right. So what were some of the, I guess, so either when you were originally getting into programming or when you're getting into Elixir, what were some of the resources that you found most useful getting started? One thing that was really good was that you could read the source code. So just the source code of Elixir and a lot of the projects. I also read different books. One book is the Dave Thomas book. Another one was, I also like was Cesar Yurik's book. Whatever the titles are in those. We can look them up yeah. and link to Elixir them. Elixir in, in Action is, is Sasha's. And I think Programming Elixir is the Dave Thomas book. Right, yeah. Elixir in Action by Cesar Yurik and Dave Thomas's Programming Elixir. Dave Thomas is programming Elixir. I, I think. I think you're right about that. Yeah. But then there are also other books. One is Chris McCord's book about macros. I'm not sure. It's been a while, so I'm not sure exactly when it was just starting with Elixir. I'm not sure exactly what I was reading at the time. But one thing now, like there, there now there's a, a lot more books. But one thing definitely that I think is good is that just the source code and documentation is good. And I think for me, it's, it was easier to read than if, let's say, you want to look at the source code of Ruby. It's mostly written in a different language, whereas most of Elixir is written in Elixir, at least the standard library. And um, that was helpful. Maybe you could dive into that a little bit because you contributed a fair amount to Elixir. And we'll talk about your contributions as well. But I'm curious, like... If I was super new to the language or, or super new to programming and I heard someone say that Elixir was written in Elixir, I would wonder how that was possible and what that means. So could you maybe explain to the, the naive among us what that means? Yeah, so there is part of it that certain constructs, for instance, if you have, I believe, if else is written in Elixir, it's a macro, that if it didn't exist you could write it yourself. 
using Elixir macros. So there are certain parts of it, the language that is not written in Elixir, because that's not possible as far as like you need something to, you know, it, it's based on Erlang. It needs to interact mm. with Erlang. So, you know, I don't know all the details of it. I haven't written a programming language from scratch myself. But, but a lot of it, a lot of the constructs are made in macros or just plain Elixir code. So that means some of the stuff I contributed are functions in the standard library and structs in the standard library that you could write yourself. And they didn't used to exist. You could have something similar in a third-party library or just your own application in a, in a file. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just happens to be that these things are available in a standard library, so it's there for everyone. So this goes for a lot of the modules you have in Elixir. They're not special, except that they're just there and they're the same for everyone. But you could write something equivalent yourself. And also there are some books that I believe go into this, books of tutorial that touch in this. I don't have any particular, I don't, I don't have to, I mean, maybe that about the books and tutorials going to that. I don't have any specific links to that, but. So I guess moving on to, so you sort of mentioned this. So you've, you started with, I think you said Callens in, in one of our emails. I think that's what it was called. And then it, went, it became Calendar and then TZ Data. So how did you end up being the other time guy that's not Timex in Elixir? <laughs> so when I started, I saw that there was no library that did time zones, at least correctly. Because one thing about, time zones is that they change. So one thing is, you know, they change so that the offset is different in the summer and the winter in many places around the world. So in that way, they change, you know, maybe twice a year, typically. But also the rules change, right? And that's important because if it's announced that in a certain place, starting next year in a certain time, the rules are different. So maybe people stop having daylight saving time. So there was no library that did that in Elixir. Another thing was I had experience with how date and time was handled in Ruby or PHP, Java, JavaScript, and in various databases. And I was not happy, especially with Ruby, with how it was handled. And I thought it was very confusing. You have date and you have time and date time, and they're kind of the same but different. At one point, at least one was there, and then you had to require it. We, we didn't, and it was just uh, not very clear. And a lot of things just didn't work so well. There's a lot of magic going on, and it was hard to figure out what you really were dealing with. So there are two things. One thing, the main thing I wanted was something that I would want to work with because I like the language a lot. I wanted to have something that worked well since you know I, I was seeing myself working with this language. I wanted that part to work well. And I thought it was an interesting problem. So I decided to work on it. So, you know, you could say one difficult part of it is actually getting a time zone library to work because you have this, all this information is published in in clear text and plain text files by, now it's by IANA. It's been called the Olsen database or the Eggert database or TSET data, TSET database. It's had many names. But basically, it's available and provided by the same organization that handles domain names on the internet. So you can make some software that that parses those files and and figures out how the time zone 
rules are for a certain place and a certain time. So I started doing that and with the goal of having some solution that had the types that I would like and also would work with time zones. So then I released this library called Calendar. At first it was called Calends. And then I thought, oh, maybe I should call it Calendar instead because it's more straightforward. Then I extracted the time zone part of it to be a separate package. And then starting from there, both Calendar and Timex were using the TSET data package for doing the time zone calculations. Then for Elixir 1.3, Trisivalim contacted me and Paul Schoenfelder that made Timex, and we worked to get input on getting certain structs into the language so that you had structs where they would work well with different libraries. So you had one struct, let's say you have a date, for instance. It's a certain kind of struct. It works in one library and also another library because it's in the standard library. And also was used with, there would also be added certain functions to the standard library itself that could use those structs. Yeah, so then there were functions added to these structs. And the structs are basically, they look very much like the ones that are in calendar. So in, in calendar, you have date and time and naive date time and daytime. And um, we can go into why they're called that. But basically, those are uh, made to be, you know, you have in JavaScript, for instance, you only have one time, you have date. But it's not just a date, it also has some other stuff in it. So it's kind of a thing. This is also some of the stuff I've written about on my blog, where, you know, programmers have a certain way of talking about things that are different from people that don't do programming. So you have one word and it means different things in different contexts, depending on the language. So in databases, you have a date is a year, a month, and a day of the month. This is the case if you ask the average person in the street. And also, if you have a MySQL database, that's just a very simple thing. But then if you ask JavaScript, it also adds some other extra things like a time zone and microseconds. And that can be confusing because if you want to communicate that something happened, let's say someone's birthday, and then you add this complexity of having, a, you add the complexity of having a um, time zone and microseconds, that can cause bugs and confusion because you're kind of saying this person was born in this time zone on this particular microsecond, and that's kind of misrepresenting the data you actually have. So that's, it's another topic that I think is interesting about having the right amount of data and having correct data. There's also this old saying of garbage in, garbage out, talking about having good, correct data. So if you have correct that is incorrect and you work on it in your software, then what you're going to have coming out is probably not going to be so good. So this is the reason why there are different types that can do different things and one cool thing that was added for the standard library that is not in calendar is this idea that Jose came up with, with having precision. So you can have, if you parse a daytime with a certain amount of decimals, let's say it has, you know, it's like 10 seconds, 0. 0.123. In a lot of languages, you would have like 0. 0.123000. But here, the amount of decimals we have is there. So 
I think that can be very useful that you have, you don't suddenly automatically just invent some zeros. You kind of represent what you had coming in. So when someone asks you what was actually recorded, that can come out again and that you didn't change it along the way. Yeah, I think that mostly pops up in, at least for me in, in Ecto, when you have to, like, anytime you take a, a date time or timestamp or whatever and you pass it through, it's like, whoa, you didn't want USEX, so truncate it. I always thought that was a, a cool addition, so it's cool to hear how it came about. Yeah, cool. Can you walk us, maybe just go way back to the beginning? Because I'd love to hear how you got started, like when this problem initially occurred to you. How did you deconstruct the problem? I mean, first of it, I think I remember when I started doing it, I started to write down certain things. Like I wanted to write down, this is what I want to come out of it. This is the, the problems I have. This is the goals. These are the goals I have for it. And I remember thinking that I wasn't exactly sure. It was like hard to put down. So some of the ideas I have about it today or I had about it like a year after I started are probably different than what I had in the beginning. So I think this is also relevant to software development in general or projects in general. Probably like there are certain things where you just have to start exploring it. You have to start doing certain things to know and you learn more along the way. But definitely... There's one thing I know I started with was just I wanted time zones to be a part of it. And one thing was, so the first, for Callens, the first type was daytime that had a time zone. And then three others were added shortly after. So I wanted it to be not an extra burden to have the correct time zone. So if you, like, I think a lot of things where when you do programming, you tend to, in some cases, take the shortest path, the easiest path. Just because there's always something else you could do, you know, if you have something you know that works and something is simple, you're likely to choose that path. And in general, choosing something that's simple is a good idea. And this is another concept, another thing that I've been thinking about more lately is when you talk about simple and simplicity and simplistic, I'm not a native English speaker, but as far as I know, the, the word simplistic is not just like like a fancier way of saying simple. It's when you oversimplify things. So if certain things, and this is a case, especially for things that have to do with date and time and time zones, have a certain complexity to them. So one example of that is leap seconds, for instance. They don't come up that often, but when they do, one thing that I think is kind of unfortunate is that certain businesses will just shut down when there's a leap second. So depending on where you are in the world, when the leap second happens, I believe in Asia, because usually the leap second is on UTC midnight, they have to shut down stock markets because they don't trust their computers to work, right? So imagine you have all this technology, you have this society, people talking about, oh, we're gonna have you know self-driving cars and self-flying, whatever. And we, you can't even handle leap seconds, which is concept introduced in the early 70s. Everyone knows when they happen. It shouldn't be that hard to do. But because the way people decide to ignore it, it doesn't work, right? So you can have a, when you talk about complexity, you can talk about inherent complexity that a problem has. And then you, that's kind of the minimum complexity that you need in your solution if you want to solve all these problems, right? Then you can choose to ignore it and then once you hit that like real world complexity, your solution stops working. So this is like 
in this case, maybe it's worth it. Maybe that's a good solution because people will just do like a cost benefit analysis and say, yeah, this is fine. It's not a big deal to shut down once in a while. And uh, then we don't have to spend so much time looking at this problem. But coming back to this thing of, of having this daytime type that always has time zones in it, the idea is to make it easy as just as easy to have, you know, let's say you're doing something with New York time, let's say. You could just say, I don't want to have the time zone there. It's easier to just do UTC or it's easier to do just not have the time zone there at all. So the idea is that if you create a new daytime struct, it's just as easy to do UTC as it is to have New York time. So that's kind of a choice to have for the perspective of the, the user of the library to have it be easy and accessible to kind of to have it be easy to do the right thing for that problem. So one very important question that I have, do you hate time zones more than your average developer because you've had to parse and write an entire library that a language uses? Yeah, this is a good question. Yeah, I actually don't hate them. And I think also they are necessary. Like there are certain things you could do to make it easier if people didn't change the rules all the time. Like there are some places where they will announce that, oh, next week we're not going to change away from daylight saving time anyway, even though we said we would. That was the existing rules. Sometimes it's, oh, actually yesterday we didn't do it. So you can be like that much out of time. Yeah, so that's the thing that could be easier for people to deal with, with if they didn't change with such a short notice. Another thing is daylight saving time, which I think you could do away with. And then people could instead decide to, at a certain date, change the schedule, right? So you could all agree, okay, starting whatever, the last Sunday of March, we're all going to go to work or go to school one hour earlier, which is the, the same thing. Uh, one thing that I think is kind of funny is when people talk about having permanent daylight saving time, because that doesn't make as much sense. It's just kind of a number. I could see that being, you know, if you kept doing that, you would have some kind of inflation where eventually, you know, four would be the equivalent of three and two or the other way around. It's just like, that's a thing that you could probably do without. But if you think about it, they're necessary. And if I think they're annoying, not that much. I think it's possible to handle them. And I mean, it would be easier, sure, if you didn't have to, but I don't think it's that bad. Do you have any tips for anyone who is working with time in Elixir? That's a very good question. Yeah, so one thing is that Everyone that uses Ecto, I would recommend to use UTC datetimes for the timestamp. So insert it at and update it at. By default, they're naive datetime, and I would recommend everyone to have UTC datetime for that. On my blog, there's a link to how you can do that. Also, another thing is now with the newest version of Elixir and also the one that's coming out in October, there's a lot of things you can do with date and time in just a standard library. So depending on what you're doing, you might not need to pull in a third-party library to do date and time stuff. So I would just look at the functions that are in the standard library now because it's been growing since version 1.3. And uh, there's a lot of stuff you can do now without having extra dependencies. Hmm. 
Thank you so much, Lau. Before we close out, we've got to share another edition of Pattern Matching with Todd. Friend of the podcast, Todd Resedek, is asking members of the Elixir community five questions to help us all get to know each other better. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome to another installment of Pattern Matching with Todd, where I ask your favorite members of the Elixir community the same five questions in order to get to know them better. My guest today is a big star of the functional programming community and one of my programming idols. Welcome, Brooklyn Zelenka. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me, Brooklyn. So let's just jump into question number one. Where were you born? So I was born in small town. Actually, we were living outside of the small town, but uh, Welland, Ontario, Canada. Okay, so Welland, based on my research, is over by Niagara Falls area. Yep, or that's the closest close. landmark. Okay. Yes. And then, so you lived there and then have you lived anywhere else? Yeah. So growing up, I moved around quite a lot. I don't actually remember Welland at all. So moved around a fair bit. The main highlights are Calgary, which is often described as being like Texas North, you know, lots of oil and beef and Timmins, which is pretty much it's 800 kilometers north of Toronto. So middle of the woods, but its claim to fame is it's where Shania Twain's from. Okay. So I, I looked at Timmins on the map, and it looks like it's even quite a bit north of Sudbury, which I thought was a very out-of-the-way place. So yes, Timmins I'm must surprised. be an ex sick, extremely out-of-the-way place. Yeah, it is. I'm surprised you even know Sudbury. Yeah, so I've done the drive back and forth. Timmins to Sudbury a few times. It's about four hours and yeah, you, you're driving to Timmins and you see a sign, welcome to Timmins, and you're still in the middle of the woods and there's nothing. And then you drive another 20 minutes and you see a house, you know, it's, it's very out of the way. Yeah. I'm guessing a lot of Canada is that way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, most of the population is in big cities, especially uh, Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal. But yeah, quite a bit of it is there's just so much space, right? Yeah. How did you end up in all these unusual places? Your parents in an interesting line of work? running from the law? <laughs> so mainly, so we were living just outside of Calgary for a while, and then my parents split up. And so we, I moved to Ontario with my mother. And then her new husband works for Ontario Power Generation, so like the, um, the electricity company. And so he would get placed in different cities. Basically. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. And then I moved to Vancouver in 06, just on my own, you know, partway through university, and also lived in, did the digital nomad thing for a while. I lived in Japan for a year, South America, so kind of traveled around, but really Vancouver's home, so. Okay. Yeah. So what part of Japan? Kind of all over, nothing north of Tokyo. I spent oh. most of my time in Tokyo, Osaka, and Fukuoka, but was moving on average every 10 days, so living out oh, of wow. Airbnbs, Yeah. Okay. Well, we've got a lot of Elixir friends in Fukuoka. Oh, great. And in that area. So shout out to all of them, including Zaki Sansei. You know Zaki? I don't the, know. Um, Pelame Project? Oh, the I... GPU Project? No? Yeah. Fukuoka? No? Okay. All right. Never mind then. So that's, that's very cool. So let's move on. Yeah. Have you had any careers before programming? Yeah, so I don't know anything that I would call like a career. I had a long series of jobs. I guess the main ones, I worked in the kitchen, managed the kitchen for a little bit, learned some good knife skills, managed a retail store. I was an Apple genius, graphic designer. I studied classical music in university. So I have done a little bit of film composing, obviously been a music instructor, flute blog researcher, 
I was on a land survey crew, and I've done tool repair at Home Depot. So kind of a nice spread there. <laughs> wow. Okay, let's go back to classical music instructor. Mm -hmm. So is that what you studied in university? It is, yeah. Like any particular instruments? Yeah, so my main instrument was the flute, but we had to take piano as well. So I did crash piano, but I was mainly studying theory and composition, which is and I, I say this on a lot of podcasts, surprisingly similar to computer science, the kind of math you pick up. So it's a lot of, especially at the, the upper levels, you do some linear algebra, a little bit of category theory. We don't learn them as pure mathematical disciplines, but you end up pulling a lot of the concepts out. Okay. Yeah, I've, I'm not super surprised by that. I've known a lot of really good programmers that had a, uh, a formal instruction in music. And so I always thought there was two reasons for that. One being like the mathematics, the pattern matching, mm -hmm. being able to pick out patterns or communicate in like a, a different language, I guess, than mm -hmm. your normal spoken language. Yeah. Uh, and then second, like there's not very many jobs in being a musician. So <laughs> a lot of them are having to find a plan B, I guess. Yes, th this is the main thing. So out of my cohorts of theory and comp students, as far as I'm aware, one is now a professor uh, of music and the rest are programmers. Ah, see, makes perfect sense. Yeah. So I think there's probably other disciplines that mm -hmm. would lend themselves to programming, but there's enough jobs in there that those people haven't switched yet. So Exactly, yeah. Well, that's great. I think like one of the things I always have admired about your talks is how well designed your slides are. Oh, and thank you. I always tell people it's not fair that somebody can have such a great, smart left brain talk with such a great right brain design on it. Like it, it doesn't seem like one person should be able to possess both of those things. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think that's the limited experience as a graphic designer coming through. Plus uh, pro tip in Keynote, the magic move slide transition seems to really impress people, but it's just one button. So, okay. Yeah. Pro tip. And you've spoken a lot of places. Like I was trying to research all the conference talks you've given in the last couple of years and it was overwhelming. I can't really even enumerate them. <laughs> oh. So what, what are the highlights? I know, I think you spoke at FOSDEM maybe this year, Stockholm. Yeah, so Stockholm. And I know you were in San Francisco. Yes. And so what are the, some of the other highlights, I guess? Oh, well, let me, let me pull up a, a quick list here. So I have a, I use Notist, N-O-T-I-S.com to hold my slides. Sorry, N-O-T-I.S-T. So I have about... 30 or 40 talks on here. I really enjoyed the San Francisco talk at uh, Codebeam. That was a fun talk to put together and had some good discussions from it as well. Yeah, I was in Sweden. I talked at, probably going to butcher the pronunciation of this, but uh, Oradev gave a couple talks there. I was in Amsterdam in the fall. I gave a talk in Osaka at the Ethereum Developer Conference. Having previously lived in Osaka, that was very nice to be back for. I guess some other highlights... I really enjoyed Krakow for Lambda Days last year. I had no idea what to expect from uh, Krakow, but beautiful city, really nice people. If you get the chance, would definitely recommend. Excellent. Well, shout out to uh, Poland and Krakow specifically. So if you were not a programmer, what do you think you'd be doing? <laughs> so the short answer is I have no idea. I sort of fell into programming by accident and it's been the last, not quite decade, but close. At one point, I had almost like a fork in the road where I could go back to school and ideally become an immigration lawyer or try out this whole programming thing and went the programming direction. So maybe an immigration lawyer. 
but that's that's a lot of training so wow yeah it's a lot of work i guess yeah i don't know what it's like in canada but it's probably even a whole whole another ball of wax in the u.s yeah all right well let's close that can of worms <laughs> so moving on what's the genre of the last song or the last album you listened to yeah, so almost certainly some some progressive rock. Uh, I definitely like the you know seventies. My co-founder Boris makes fun of me. I listen to a lot of Rush. He's about a decade older than I am, so he says, "Well, you know, maybe small town Canada makes up the the decade difference." But yeah, you know, Rush, Queen, yes, all of those, fantastic. Okay, all right, yeah. When I when I see old school progressive rock, I think of Yes as like the quintessential example of prog rock. Yeah. Early Genesis. Yeah. Like when Peter Gabriel was still in it, that sort of thing. Yeah. Gentle Giants. So how did you get into that? So growing up, I had a old record player. My dad didn't believe that these CDs were going to catch on. So I had the radio and a handful of old records from the 70s and 80s. And that was my main exposure to music beyond classical. So had Dark Side of the Moon, Queen's Day at the Races, you know, a few of those classic albums and kind of from there. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty good stuff that you had there. Yeah. Yeah. Like at the time, it was very annoying that that's all I had, but now it kind of gives me hipster cred. So yeah, uh, no, musically, that's good. I think the best record we had at my house was the album from Saturday Night Fever. Oh, nice. Yes. Which was an okay album, but it was far and away the best album that was right. at my, my house. My parents are not known for their musical taste. Mm. All right. So is there a movie or some TV show that you're going to watch every single time you come <laughs> across it on TV? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a few. I, I have a couple that I rewatch or just for comfort. One of them is Amadeus, the 1984 classic, probably my classical music background. Lovely movie, great music. Back to the Future, I watch a fair bit. Uh, and then in terms of series, I've rewatched Mad Men like four or five times now just because there's a lot of it and I can leave it on in the background while doing other things. Really? Yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah, the Amadeus one is maybe that's obvious because of your classical music, but Mad Men, interesting. Yeah. I, I tried to watch the first episode of that. I, I could not get into it. Yeah, it's a bit of a slow burn, you know. I got introduced to it right when the show was wrapping up and people were fairly excited about it. So I sort of binge-watched the first several seasons and didn't really get the point until maybe season three. And then it sort of started to click of like, oh, this is actually about, less about the characters and more about things like identity and what the limits are for a person in their job. You know, like obviously the whole 60s thing thing as well. And it's interesting to go back and, and explore the, the history that they bring in as well and, you know, the sort of major events from the time. But the really interesting thing for me was the identity piece because they're making almost like a philosophical argument about it. So seven seasons of that, but and you start to really get to know the characters, but that's when it really clicked for me. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right, wrapping up, what project are you most excited about working on next? Or maybe... What are you working on now that you're looking forward to keep working on and finishing up? Yeah, so I have a few things. I mean, most of my time, the vast majority of my time right now, I have a startup. So that consumes, it's all consuming, right? So with that one, we're working on probably less popular idea in this crowd, but uh, getting rid of the back end and DevOps entirely and doing everything in the front end, storage, database, everything. That said, other projects that I have kind of on the back burner right now, 
I mean, I do need to go back and I have some old stuff in witchcraft that need to get updated or changed. It takes a while to compile right now. But my next projects that I'm excited about, I want to take some of the ideas because I've already now, you know, ported a bunch of stuff from Haskell into Elixir. And I want to port some ideas from Elixir into Haskell. So I want to write an opinionated web framework where we have some of the bits of that where a Haskell shop at Vision. So we have parts of that already and a user-friendly sort of Elixir of Haskell. And the same way that Elixir is related to Erlang, I want to do the same for a Haskell-like language. But that's a big project. So, yeah. Yeah. Hopefully you can enlist some help on that or yeah. give yourself plenty of time mm -hmm. to complete it. it sounds, yeah. sounds like it might take a minute. Yeah. All right. Well, great. Thanks for answering my questions today, Brooklyn. And thanks for joining me on Pattern Matching. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we will have all those links for the audience in the show notes. Thank you so much, Loud Tornsko, for coming on the show. Uh, Elixir Wizards is a Smart Logic podcast. Here at Smart Logic, we're always looking to take on new projects, building web apps in Elixir, Rails, React, infrastructure projects using Kubernetes, and mobile apps using React Native. We'd love to hear from you if you have a project we could help you with. Don't forget to like us and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. You can find me and Eric on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. You can find me at Justice Epen and Eric at Eric Ostrich. Join us again next week on Elixir Wizards for more on system and application architecture.